Spellburn, we're opening things up a bit and talking about something near and dear to the heart of the old school renaissance. Rules like games versus rules heavy games. Systems like Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG give the game back to the judges, but how does that affect players and play style? I'm Judge Jim, and with me tonight are my two co-hosts, Judge Job. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> and Judge Jeffrey. Hello, everyone. So, how the hell are we? Doing good. <laughs> Very good. Is everybody in a good mood? I can't p- complain. Drinking a Corona over here. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got a Monster Energy drink, so we're, we're going to cover it all. All right. Well, let's proceed to the tavern. And the first rule of bartending is this. GBTB. Go beyond the book. Go beyond the book. What do you have? Heineken. Death. Tavern talk. So, what did we do in gaming this past week? Who wants to go first? How about you, Joe? I'll go because my stories are so much lamer than Jeffrey's every week. <laughs> That's what I was I, thinking. Oh, I don't know about yeah. that. I, I don't make the kids cry, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, gaming didn't make my kids cry this week, so, so yeah, that's bore that's boring there. And my uh, the game I was supposed to run fell through, so it's going to be next week now. So just uh, writing. Since I'm so boring, I was thinking of just like talking about something cool I found on the internet today. So one of our listeners is uh, is doing um, like a spell jammer DCC mashup kind of OSR zine. Oh, yeah, called, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Crawl Jammer. Have you guys seen that on G Plus today? Uh, I saw it come across G Plus. It looks pretty cool. Definitely interested to see how that turns out. Another zine. I'm all for it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just just the whole idea of it, too. That's uh, Tim Callahan. That's that guy that works at, I think he works at Tor. Oh, I've just been reading uh, the Tor uh, website. They've got all these Appendix N reviews somebody posted on Facebook. Is he one of those guys? I he, I think he is one of those guys. They're really good examinations of the Appendix N authors. That's cool. I didn't put those those, those two together. I saw both headlines today. I think or between the past two days, but I hadn't put the names and places together. Well, sweet. Does he does he say when the first issue is going to be out? He he doesn't know yet. So um, I don't know. I already I, I need to email him. I said I I want to subscribe now. Don't care. <laughs> I don't need to know who's in it. Anything. Just <laughs> gimme. Here's my money. Put me on the subscription list. Well, so it, on the surface, at least, it sounds like uh, DCC Spelljammers. Have I, have I got that right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's the premise. And then, you know, I think he's not 
not going to be limited just to DCC. Other, um, you know, old school games. Sweet. So how about you, Jeffrey? Let's see. Uh, this week I played with my online group again, as usual. Uh, they are bumping around in the great city. They had previously sort of uh, paralyzed a wizard that was one of the sole wizards that did much crafting inside the town. They sort of snuck up on me when they did that, and so they ended up paralyzing the guy. And let's see, they've had a, they put in a stand-in over the course of the evening. One of the, the things that the wizard they'd paralyzed was making was for a high-ranking member of the Thieves Guild. They didn't know that. When the guy's buddies came in to collect the, the sword, they, had, they thought they were going to be cool and keep the sword and steal the money. And they did end up killing the guys, but now they are most likely going to have the Thieves Guild sort of upset with them. So that'll be an interesting little point as that plays out. And then from there, they need to gather some sacrifices for the temple they have. So they headed off to the slave district. And uh, I sort of used that opportunity. We're going to uh, probably branch into a miracle was framed. Uh, so I sort of launched the opening gambit of that Goodman Games module. That went well. Overall, the game's going going really well. Got lots of little uh, hooks and twists. And I think it's going pretty well. Everyone seems to be having a good time. And we recorded the session this time, and I've just got to get permission from one more guy in the group that plays with us to post it. But we started editing the actual play footage, and we'll probably likely post that as an actual play podcast, maybe to appease some of the requests we get to Spellburn. So while maybe not necessarily all three of us here on an actual play, <laughs> at least it will be an actual play with one of us and you know get some DCC actual play stuff out there for people that enjoy that, that Good sort job. of thing. Good job, man. Yeah. Sounds like you just got me and Job off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, like I said, we're editing now, and I've got to get permission from one other player in the group to be sure he's cool with it getting posted. But, uh, but you know, we should have that coming sometime soon. Well, that's awesome <laughs> of you and your group to do that. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was cool. The recording came out well, and uh, they were all, all for it. So. Uh, and it's a fun group. It really is. There's a lot of good guys, and we've been playing now for over a year. So we've got sort of the, I don't know, I, I don't know. It, it should be good. It'll be, it'll be an interesting peek at DCC from sort of the chaotic perspective. So That sounds awesome. I want to listen to that one. <laughs> <laughs> I know Jim won't be, so. <laughs> I uh, Well, because of the request, I tried to uh, go and listen to a sister podcast live play thing, and I made it like two and a half minutes, and I just, I you know, I, I, everybody has their taste and their cup of tea. It's just not my deal. Sometimes I even get bored in my own games if, uh, if things are, if the action's getting slow as a player, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I've been there before. But uh, that didn't happen last night. Uh, I haven't had a chance to run my system since our last recording, but uh, last night the Save or Die Crew Plus One played basic D&D in uh, Angry Monk's online game, and we're playing that Judge's Guild adventure dwarven or glory hole dwarven mine perhaps the most inappropriately named module i've ever played in <laughs> and uh, it was good it, we, lots of fun we're just in the we just got in the first level so we're running into first level stuff except it's judges guild first level stuff so the goblins all have two or three hit die everything's weird and ramped up which is i love is cool but i had to uh I had to kind of pull it back a notch because, you know, we were in like one of those situations where we got jumped by another band of adventurers and we got initiative and I'm just, and, and it was this real tense standoff, what's going to happen? And I'm just like, no, web, bang, dropped a web on them. And then we just basically, you know, took their stuff and sent them running. Uh, did you guys find the glory hole yet? Or is that yeah, yeah, we're in it. Your sessions? Yeah, yeah, we're 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 in like the top level of it. I've never read it or played it before, so it's all new ground to me. But after, you know, it was very anticlimactic. You know, magic user drops a web, then we then we you know uh, interrogate him and let him go. And I'm like, okay, I got to kick back a little and let somebody swing a sword. Next couple encounters. So that's yeah, what we did. I was joking, Jim. Huh? I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn it! I'm trying to phase you. <laughs> It's too late in the evening for me to get two faced. <laughs> a guy in the e-cig store today, he's like, "I'm sure you get this all the time, but you look and sound just like John Malkovich." And I'm like, "That's oh, because I'm using my inside voice." And he's like, "What's your outside voice sound like?" I'm like, "You really don't want to know." <laughs> Have you gotten that before? I, I I don't get that at all. No, never. I think it's just because I shaved my head. Oh, you shaved your head? Yeah, back for Halloween. I just kept it that way. Have you not seen the pictures, Joe? 
Oh, is that your profile picture where you're wearing a robe or something? Uh, on Google Plus, yeah, yeah. No, that's yeah. that's oh. old. That's from a couple of Halloweens ago. I still. Oh no, I haven't seen the pictures. One. No, dude, I, I got a completely naked head except for the mustache and goatee. It's, it's pure evil. Oh wow! All right, I gotta check that out. Another picture from my shrine. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just trying to get in step with the Dark Master. That's all I'm doing. <laughs> anyway, all right. <laughs> How about we summon some emails? <laughs> You've got mail. Message for you, sir. Summon email. Okay, why well, we cleared that email bag out and it's just started filling right back up again. It did. It did. We did get several more emails this week. Well, let's read one. Let me see if I can use I'm going to do the Johnny Carson thing and predict we've got an email i bet from dm kojo we do and he writes greetings judges i was wondering if you could give examples how you each describe combat encounters in your games do you roll dice tell the player they were hit for x amount of damage and move on or you describe the actual type of damage that occurred such as which body part was damaged and how it happened how descriptive do you get he continues i find that i usually do the former most of the time and only get very descriptive on critical hits. However, I'm starting to think that adding more descriptive elements to all aspects of my DCC game, including combat, may help set the appendix and tone that I am seeking. My only concern is that it may make combat more cumbersome and slow. Thanks for your thoughts, DM Kojo. Well, I definitely like to describe things, but uh, Job is my hero for this. Now that I've played in one of Job's games, Job excels at this. He gets oh. into it. He doesn't just make his own children cry. He'll he'll do it to adult players at the table if you let him. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to my whole thing of uh, I get sick of me talking, and I I really want to. I try to encourage the players to talk, so I always ask. You know, it, it doesn't have to be a critical hit. It's you know, if they got you know a pretty good hit or whatever, they land their their uh, their mighty deed of arms. I ask them, you know, how did you do? What weapon did you use? And, you know, how did they go down? And if they don't want to fill in the details, I'll just jump in there. And, yeah, and you cut his ear right off and it fell on the ground or something. I don't know. And I think it adds a lot to uh, just throw random details in there. And, uh, I don't know. For me, I don't like to use grids or maps or, or anything like that. Just kind of do it in your head. And, and I like to go for the evocative, you know, kind of mental images. Hell, Yeah. I don't know what I was thinking when we were doing the section on what are we doing gaming this week. Last night at the basic D&D game, some bug got up my butt and Mike Fighter made a critical hit. Shannon is running the game and all of a sudden I'm like, okay, Mike, give me a D12. Because in basic D&D, a critical hit is maximum weapon damage and that's it. And so I, I just jumped in and I'm like, Mike, uh, what, your 10th level fighter? Give me a D12. And, he, and, and Shannon's like, what? And I'm like... Mike, give me a D12, and he rolls it, and I read the critical hit out of DCC, and they liked it so much that we did that for the rest of the game. Shannon's like, okay, he just fumbled, Jim. What happened? Oh, oh God, awesome. he's the laughing stock of the whole party. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's great about DCC, too. They're just All those those tables in there, just anybody can just grab the core book and just start using it in their game, even if they don't even, they can't convince their players to you know play DCC. I'm just yeah. spreading the corruption. One step at a time, man, one step at a time. As far as me, I, I wish I was like Job and could do it for every single blow and strike in the game. I end up, no matter what my good intentions are, at typically describing more descriptive on critical hits or like, you know, if you're on a D10 for damage and you get a 10 and, you know, even if it's not critical, what a ghetto critical or something, I'll, uh, you know, it'd be more descriptive in, in my terms. Someone hits their deed die with towards the max, especially we're hitting fourth and fifth level. So I have people hitting deed dies at, you know, D6s and D7s, getting a six or seven. So I'll tend to describe those as a little more descriptively to get things going. But a lot of the, the you know, if you're rolling, you just hit, you do four, five, six points of damage. I probably too quickly slip into the, okay, you hit, you do six points of damage. Certainly an area I'd like to improve because I think it can be done without slowing the game down a lot and it adds a lot, but I have, a, I don't know, I have a hard time consistently applying it to every facet of the battle. Yeah, I, I definitely don't do it for everything. Just kind of pepper them in there and, and just try to mix them in um, to keep the kind of 
push people back towards thinking about, you know, like visualizing the scene instead of just what number they rolled on a die. Right. And I think that, uh, and probably the peppering works just as well. I mean, like you said, it, it snaps them out of the, we're now we're just rolling dice. But if you start throwing those descriptions in, you take them into that more vivid imagery to make them think about what's going on. And I think it probably encourages them to take advantage of the environment and all those things we'd like to see players do to to keep the game dramatic, you know, take advantage of the environment. And, you know, so, you know, peppering in probably works just as well, too. Well, I, I love how Job describes the brutality of the combat, but I, I I, a trick I learned from paying close attention to how Michael Curtis runs a game is to not sit in the chair. Mike stands up, waves his arms around, and I have uh, started doing that when I'm judging a game. Now, I don't have Mike's gift for exotic elocu- elocution, but uh, just the act of standing up at the table seems to remind me in my head not to just go, okay, you smacked him for six, he's still alive. You know, that's probably a good tip. I know when I run games in person, I'll sometimes stand, and you do feel a little bit more energetic or a little more involved than when you're just sitting there in the chair or something like that. So that's probably a good tip for people to looking to pick that aspect of their game up. Okay. The next email is from Edwin Tomlinson, and he says, Dear the Band, Love the podcast. I really appreciate that you give true and honest feedback about elements of the game in the hope that we can see an already great game get even better. I gather that some of you use Google Hangouts, and I wonder how you go about managing the funky dice. Do you have an application I've not heard of, or do you use uh, real dice and just trust? How does this work with the GM open dice policy? Do you have any tips or tricks for running a game online that I might find useful? Keep up the spell burn. The sometimes incendiary EAD 101. Well, thanks, EAD. So, yes, I run... My weekly game is over Google Plus Hangouts with Roll20. So we use Roll20's dice roller when we play. Uh... I don't know if you've used it, but pretty much you can type in a command forward slash roll space and any dice die you want. So 1D7, 1D30, 1D100, whatever you want to do. So that's how we do it. There are some graphical dice, but most of us just type it in. There's a little chat window, and so you can roll the funky dice that way. Um, When we're doing that way, I roll the GM's dice in the chat window so they see what I roll, which make sure if you're rolling – you mean it because uh, if you go, <laughs> <There's no fudge. laughs> yeah, there is no fudge. So if you really don't want to kill somebody and you're rolling, it, you don't get the fudge because they know what you rolled uh, out there, which I don't really have a problem with because I tend to not roll things that don't need rolled and I roll things that do. And, you know, they've grown used to, well, they're going to see how it goes. So that's how we do it. Now, back in the early days of Roll20, uh, they used to have a problem, a lag problem with their dice roller where you'd roll and it would be three, four minutes before the roll popped up. Now, excuse me, they haven't had that problem for quite some time, almost a year now. But when that happened, I trusted the players to roll at their roll their own dice at their own house and just tell me what they got. I've been playing with a group of guys for a while. I trust them. You know, if they want to lie about their dice, I you know, <laughs> I don't know. You know, there's a point where it's just come on. So I do trust my players to roll if if there's a, been a technical difficulty or I've had them play before from just their uh, iPhone where they don't have the full roll twenty hangout up, and I'll let them roll their dice on their own, and I trust them to do that. So uh, that's how we handle it in my online game. Our online basic D and D game is all Skype audio, so we're just trusting the hell out of everybody. Yeah, I don't know why you wouldn't trust everybody. I mean, yeah, I haven't had any trouble with trusting the people. I mean, I've done other online games that are all Skype instead of Roll Twenty, and you know, just roll. I, I don't have a problem with that. Never had there, there is no doubt that DM Liz and I are uh, fudging our dice rolls. <laughs> roll for initiative. I rolled a one. <laughs> Man, I've got actually got a funny story about fudging dice rolls. Uh, well, just fudging everything. One of my buddies, uh, Matt Zogs, um, his D and D game in high school. One of the guys, he was a player, and then one of the other guys in, in the game that played, um, he would buy all the modules and not tell the DM, and uh, find out where everything was, and then he would like fake, you know, stumbling around and finding, you know, the sword of uh, crap. I don't know, whatever, you know, under the water or something. 
I, Mad Zog would, you know, have to pretend like he didn't know that the guy already knew where everything was in the game, and they played this way for years. So, uh, I, I've been in the lead of the marching order long enough. After we turn this corner, why don't you take over? <laughs> right, exactly. Trap, boom. <laughs> That's terrible. Oh, Sword of Lions. That's the word I was looking for the other day. Or just ah, a second. The Sword of Lions. You know what that's from, right, Jim? Uh, three Hearts and Three Lions? Oh, no, no. Uh, I think it's A3. Slavers. That sword that's under the the water. Uh, I played through that series in late 1981, so I forgot. Spoilers, man. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, how about another email? Okay, this one comes from... Dylan, Dylan. Uh, Bainbridge Island, Washington. He writes, Hi, Spellburners. I love your podcast. You guys are awesome. I'm constantly impressed by all the arcane, obscure knowledge you guys bring to the podcast. I could not do your job. When I play an RPG, my favorite characters are the suboptimal ones. I love to play orcish wizards or halfling fighters or even clerics. That's fine in AD&D as I know it because you never really have to worry about death. Because DCC is so much more lethal, I fear my characters would never make it out of the funnel. In fact, it sounds like I wouldn't be able to make a character like that in the first place. If I were playing at your table, what could I expect? Could I play a goofy character like that? Or does DCC make me happy in some other way? And he writes a little bit more, but we can answer that one first before we carry on with him. I don't know what suboptimal class you could play in, um, in DCC RPG um, other than, you know, surviving your, having your level zero funnel character survive and and um having terrible stats and you know i don't know having intelligence of eight and being a wizard or something i was gonna say they were all suboptimal <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I mean, random old funnel character it's amazing who survives and it turns out oh well this guy with a 12 intelligence my best shot at a wizard and that's what i want and you know he, you know uh you know uh, you end up with lots of weird characters coming out of the funnel yeah, it's yeah. a funny question for my system because uh, my players are like sentient apple trees and warthogs with four arms and, and telepathic bunnies in their pouch. So it's not really straight DCC. They're all kind of crazy. That sounds awesome. But uh, I mean, Crawl uh, Fanzine has some excellent alternate classes, and I mean, if it's if if it's your game and you're running it, and you decide you want there to be orc wizards in it, why couldn't you do that? Yeah, I think that's certainly yeah. a possibility. If you're at my table, feel free to to make your characters goofy and you know ready for the grave as you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, you make a good point though. The, the 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 professions that come through the character funnel are pretty will will generate. I mean, you know, you get a halfling gypsy or a dwarf gong farmer or something like that. That that starts out. That's pretty goofy background. I like how some of the modules that those guys write that stuff comes back into play even at first and second level. If you have a characters that were this, this, this is a profession, they can do this. Oh yeah, I can't think of which one, which ones have that off the top of my head, but there, yeah, there are a few of them. Okay, so he continues on with also Flojistan was a popular theory of what flame was made of. The idea was an unburnt log still has the Flojistan in it. If you lit the log on fire, you sprang a leak in the Flojistan reservoir, and the Flojistan came out, and that's what you see when you t- look at the flame. Once the log is burned up, it's run out of phlogiston, and the pile of ashes is the log minus the phlogiston. That's where the word deflagration comes from. Uh, I read this in a book called Gunpowder by Jack Kelly. It's awesome. Chinese fire lances to Alfred Noble's dynamite. Uh, and he provides an Amazon link to those. And he also writes, that Job guy is creepy. He should not be allowed to run games for four-year-olds. Four-year-olds should be exposed to graphic needless violence in a traditional way, accidentally on broadcast television. Also, I am not crazy. Signed, Dylan of Bainbridge Island, Washington. And he adds a P.S. William Bainbridge was the captain of the USS Constitution during the War of 1812. The USS Constitution still floats, I think, in Boston or near there. You can walk around on it. And if you are really nice, they'll let you drive it and shoot the cannons. Well, you know, Joe Biz is a little creepy, but that's all just part of the concierge service here at Spellburn. You know, making children cry at the table, that's just what we do. 
Yeah, I, I think the email speaks for itself. Uh, you know what his grip of sanity is. <laughs> yeah, th- this guy. I commute to to work with this guy on the on the ferry, and uh, he started listening to the podcast after I told him about it. So, oh, so you know um, the dude? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know who he is. I talked to him, and uh, and actually, uh, since he wrote this email, he's actually took a job at my office. <laughs> 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 so, so what you're saying is he shouldn't be worried about you making four-year-olds cry. He should be worried about you making 40-year-olds cry. Yeah, he's going to feel the pain. <laughs> <laughs> okay, did that wrap it up for emails? That wraps it up for emails. Let's go do some Mighty Deeds. Wait a second. I have an idea. That's plenty for the both of us. I move for no man. And welcome to Mighty Deeds. This is a good topic. Jeffrey, you came up with us for this show. I did. I did. It seemed like there's something that comes up every once in a while, usually in the framework of DCC doesn't explain this clearly and it should type conversations. And I feel like there's a you know a group that's like, no, it shouldn't, and a group that should. So I thought it'd be good to cover an episode that sort of covers rules light versus rules heavy and uh, maybe people understand where we're coming from. Well, let's, let's define our terms. What do you consider rules light versus rules heavy? I mean, because some people would go straight to, well, first edition AD&D. That's not a rules light system, even though it's an old, old system. For me, rules light uh, I, I, more of a guidelines uh, more than rulings. Trying to rule everything, uh, it's a little more like. Uh, and on the flip side, you've got like rules heavy. Which, and I, I guess my head immediately goes to some of the more recent D and Ds or Pathfinders, where there's skills to cover everything, feats to cover any little ability that you know wizards, sorcerers, fighters, barbarians can do. And it's like it's trying to codify rules heavy, just trying to codify the entire system. And to me, somewhat taking out the subjectivity of it. Whereas rule light, rules light's a little bit more. Here's some basics. Here's you know, here's how you track your health. Here's your ability scores. Here's what they mean. Skills are a little more loose, you know, if defined at all. It's more based on what's your new character background, things like that. So that's sort of how I see rules light versus rules heavy. <laughs> So not, uh, hey, my character needs to go visit the outhouse. What do I have to roll? Correct. And more role play. Yes, more role play, more creative resolution to problems. than I find that in, in a rules-heavy game, you can fall back on, I want to just roll for it. If you see a problem, it's what do I roll to see if I can figure it out. And a rules light's a little more... There's not a rule, so what do you think you should do? If you want to figure a way across that 15-foot chasm, it's not necessarily, I want to make a jump check. It's, what's around me? Oh, there's a tree that's leaning partway over. I can topple it the rest of the way over and cross. So I think you get into more, I guess, narrative game, a more problem-solving aspect of it with a rules-light game versus a rules-heavy. Just my opinion anyways. Well, if somebody just wandered in from the wilderness and had never heard of Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game and saw, okay, here's the rule book, it's hardbound, and it's the size of a small city's phone book, you know, that doesn't they, – they, they would be forgiven for thinking that's not a rules-light system. I would totally agree. I mean, the book is enormous. It's big. And at first glance, you think, how could this possibly be rules, you know, rules-light? But you get into seeing what's inside. First, all the art. I mean, we've talked about that before. There's just a tremendous amount of art inside the book. The spells, you know, a spell in a lot of systems are a paragraph, a couple paragraphs long, maybe a stat block in a paragraph long, whereas a spell in DCC can take two pages, almost always at least a full page, sometimes spreading to two pages, because they're tables. And it's not so much that you need to – it's not like that's a rule. It's you know you make your spell check one simple rule, and then you just look it up on the table. But those tables do consume a lot of room adding to the bulk of the book. Uh, same with the crit tables, fumble tables, things like that. So the tables, I think, consume a lot of room, but the mechanic behind it is actually really simple and light uh, despite the size of the book. Yeah, and you could say, okay, well, this is the rule book, but here's your character sheet. Right, exactly. I mean, it's really simple. 
if if you look at the actual pages of rules in the book, there there's not that many. I mean, the combat section, the skill section is one freaking page. It doesn't get much lighter than that, really. Yeah, I know when I read it, you know, I, when I got to the skill section, I'm like, okay, here we go. We're going to get into, you know, like 15 pages. This book's big. And like you said, there's like a page and a half of skills uh, that covers it. And it's essentially what's in your character's background. That's what they've got a shot at knowing how to do, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I agree. The rules part it, is relatively small. I, I love on the skills page, too. It's like, um, you know, I think it's, you know, listening as a luck check. That is just like, what? And then... No, you, here's the one little page, and you know you you go figure it out. Yes, very much empowering the judge to figure out how do you want to resolve that, what ability, what kind of check, things like that, which I think is token to sort of a rules like game where it puts more more decision making with the judge, whereas rules heavy is pulling decision making away from the judge in a lot of cases. I, and th- and that sounds like less freedom for the players, but it really means the opposite because you can attempt anything. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I think it's freeing rules. Lights freeing for both player and and, and the the GM because, like I said, you can try anything. Try it. You don't have to look. You don't have to go. Well, there's these thirty feats and I don't have it, so I can't try it. It's more like try it. You can try it. The judge is at the discretion to decide how what's going to apply and what your chance of, of of doing that. Or if you come up with a creative solution, it may not even make you roll because you just described such a flawless plan that. Yeah, you're able to do that. You're able to take that, knock that tree down over the 10-foot, 15-foot chasm and, and walk across it. Right. There's a little table that gives you the, the, the difficulty check rolls, and it's only got like four entries. You know, like 10 is anybody could do it, 15 is a giant heroic deed and so forth. So when a player just says, you know, I want to do so-and-so, if it's like ridiculously easy, you just go, okay, you do it. Done. Which I think is which I think throws some people off because they're used to – what do you mean I can just do it? Don't I have to roll for it? And it's like, no, you don't. You, you, you know, it's a simple task or you made it simple by some action you took. So, no, you don't have to roll for it. You just are able to do it. So I think that, that boggles people, which rolls light to me, gives the player creative tools to really interact with their surroundings. I think there's less motivation to interact with your surroundings when there's you roll D20 for everything versus – Hey, if I interact with the surrounding, I may not have to roll. So it's to my advantage to figure something out. Well, we're definitely talking about rules light versus rule heavy, but it's a playstyle thing, and it's not just endemic to Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG. Tim Cask ran his OD&D campaign from the Three Little Brown Books here in town last year, and that was, I mean, everything is just like if you want to do something, do it, and if he thinks it's tricky, he'll go just give me a d20 and roll it, and. It was a little tricky because I came from AD&D to that, so I had to get the hang of it. There was a little culture shock for me. Uh, a couple of the guys at the table that were Pathfinder players were almost shut down by that freedom, that level of freedom. It shut them down so hard they almost couldn't figure out what to do. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, no, I definitely know. And the, I, you know, I played 4E for a few years, and the, this is me at every 4E game. All right, you know, I'm going to I'm going to not I'm going to run across the that tree stump over there. I'm going to jump in the air and then I'm going to, you know, swing my mace down um on top of this guy's, you know, collarbone. And, you know, then the you know, the crappy DM looks at me and he's like, "Okay, well, uh you're going to do, you know, I need an agility check for, or you know, an acrobatics check for you to run across and then blah blah blah." And I always fail over and over and I just keep doing <laughs> I keep doing all the fun stuff anyway, but the system just keeps breaking me down, you know. So when I ran for E, I just I just like would throw the skills of system and their you know, their uh, skill challenges and stuff out the window. I'd be like, just tell me what you do. Well, I like how it even extends to weapon proficiencies because there are basic weapon proficiencies by class, but there isn't any rule that because you're a wizard, you, you know, you don't burn your hand if you pick up a weapon that you don't have as a proficiency and swing it. You just do it on a different die. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah, that, that keeps it simple. So the system that we're talking about in general and, and to Dungeon Crawl Classics specifically means that there's a lot more uh, – DM, DM fiat taking place, which means there needs to be a pretty for the players to be happy. There needs to be a pretty good trust level with the judge. Totally agreed, and I, I think that's how we ended up with the rules heavy situation. At some point, there must have been enough people having a rough time with their GM not letting them do what they thought was cool. That 
they felt like to get back, there needed to be all these rules that says, no, it's in the rule book. I can do this. But uh, with rules, I, I do think you do need to have good trust with the GM. You need to trust that they're not out there to, you know, unnecessarily damage what you're trying to do. Uh, I feel, at least when I run, and I think my group would say the same, is I'm, I'm a, probably a fairly tough GM. We have our fair share of people, you know, at least getting knocked down to zero. These higher levels, it's easier for them to recover, it seems. But, uh, it, you know, but at the same token, when they hit their mighty deed or they want to do something cool, it's like, yeah, you can do that. You, yeah, that, that's possible. You can sneak around behind and get behind that guy or something like that. So I try to be fair to both sides but i do think you need to trust the gm you know everyone wants to have fun trust the gm that he's here for the same reason and uh i think it works better that way i i think the number one thing is and and you were mentioning this before the pathfinder players and i've seen kind of you know people more accustomed to the rule system where they're looking at their character sheet for permission for what their character can do oh dude you're so right Yep, that's perfect. That's a perfect way to put it right yeah. there. And you don't need any permission. It's whatever you want to do. Do it. I mean, I, I go further. I'm like, I don't even want to narrate everything. I want you to tell me, like, if you say, uh, you know, my my uh, dagger blow, you know, uh, cut his head and blood ran into his eyes and now he's blind. You know what? That's rad. That's what happened. <laughs> well, there was an email a couple episodes back that touched on this where the guy basically asked, well, okay, this is how Dungeon Crawl Classics is, but what if you took this out and took this out and took this out? And he was basically talking about ripping all the flavor text that's written into Joseph's rules out and still somehow using the mechanic. And I'm like, no, the, the flavor text is about a third of the rule book. That's the whole point. Jo- jo- Joseph has done a, a fantastic job of trying to make the style of play we're talking about part of the rules. Yeah, through the example and like like the critical chart, you know, there's this cool stuff in there that transcends just okay, another three d eight damage. It's there's a description and an extra three d eight damage. There's you know broken fingers. There's you know uh, exploding hearts, things like that. That you know I think help reinforce that. Hey, descriptive, be descriptive. And yes, there's a mechanical benefit, but the description is uh, takes a highlight for sure. It's a great helper because there was one of those daisy chain criticals, and I, you know, this was like over a, almost a year ago, and I'm still talking about it. Where a troll got off a hit on one of our players so hard, it did like three different things. Rupt, and you know, the, so the poor dwarf's bone, his spine has been compressed, his spleen has been ruptured, his head was caved in, and he got tent pegged two feet into the ground. That was the critical hit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gi- giants are vicious. Okay, does that cover it from the? player side um i think the other thing probably from the player side is uh uh we've already touched on the, you know use the environment you know like job said it's not all in your character sheet it's interact with your environment uh, get the judge to tell you what's in this room is, is there this here is there a table there is there chairs because i want to take this chair and smash it over someone's head uh things like that um and i think the other piece is uh from the player's perspective is realize that it's not all about mathematical balance of encounters. So from the player side, I think you need to remember you might run into something that isn't balanced quote unquote uh, mathematically. Cause there's not a whole lot of, you know, challenge ratings or encounter levels and stuff. And it's more just about, there's this big creature. Do you think you can take them or not? Cause if you don't think so, you might want to try to, you know, get away and flee beforehand. So, you know, there's no guarantee that anything you face is going to be a balanced encounter per se. There's nothing more old school than running away and live to fight another day. There's a, a meme on Facebook that's like this where the meme has got a picture of the whole uh, Lords of the Ring cast, you know, getting ready for the Battle of Helm's Deep. And the caption is how most D&D uh, groups start. And then the next picture is the Knights of uh, Monty Python and Holy Grail running away from the rabbit. And the caption is how most D&D groups end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, well, let's flip it over to Mercurial Magic. Great all-seeing eye of Agamotto, you must come to my aid! Doesn't weird stuff happen when spells are messed up? I don't feel anything. So that could have gone better. Material Magic. So from the judge's side, there's a fair amount of responsibility that falls on the judge's shoulders to run a rules light system. 
there's a responsibility involved more so than other, you know if you've got a a rule for every time a dust of moat moves yeah there is i mean you know, from the player side, we mentioned you have to trust the GM, and at the same time, from the GM side, the the, the GM sort of needs to not break that trust or sort of earn that trust. And by that, you know, you know, your super cool NPC can't always miraculously escape if the characters are coming up with cool stuff to do. Sometimes it's you know, that guy. I've had a magic missile hit uh, one of my what I thought was going to be a cool, neat battle, uh, wizard rolled well, 75-point damage magic missile. And it's like, okay, uh, let it be cool. So what, your guy went down in the first round of the fight or something like that. As a GM, I think it goes far to earn the trust. R- roll with it. it. You know, Your players will trust you if you, you, know, you don't suddenly, oh, well, that guy actually had 80 hit points, so he's going to get to cast next time. Uh, so I think from the GM side, your responsibility is to not break that trust that you need from the players. So let them do cool stuff. Uh, that way, when you do need to be, you know, the hardball guy or, you know, something like that, they're not going to think you're doing it just to screw with them. They're going to see it, it's just part of the game and it's, it's, it's fair. Sure. I, I think along with that too, is make sure that you, you give people enough warning when they are getting into a dangerous situation. Um, and, it, you know, you don't have to beat them over the head. But at the same time, if if the players were actually there as characters, they would probably, you know, feel a, a sense of, hey, this is something that's pretty dangerous that might get me killed. Um, so you need to, the, the the judge needs to convey that to the actual players. But, you know, before bringing the hammer down. Um, so it's not like out of the blue, you know, you open the door and you, you know, fail to say something to Jim and, and you fall into a, a bottomless pit. <laughs> Everybody has their own style. I, you know, as, as what I watch myself for and work really hard on is the thing you say, Jeffrey. Always say yes to the players. If they want to try something, the answer is always yes, and then you figure out what the repercussions are because that's the way to handle that. You always say that, and I, I strive to emulate that and try and watch myself. But the other side of it, that you're just talking about, Job. Here's my warning: Are you sure you want to do that? Now, if you didn't understand what I just said and run in anyway. That's on you. But uh, I talk a lot tougher than I judge. That's that's kind of my personal style. I'll, 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 I'll try and make myself sound like a killer GM, but I am absolutely pulling for the players to succeed, you know, from soup to nuts. I just have to I, – I put on a game face to try and get them to take everything seriously. Does that make sense? It does, but I'm totally opposite. I want them all dead so I can go to the bar. <laughs> well, you know, you know, everybody has their style. <laughs> I thought you were getting a little impatient there towards the end of the one who watches below. <laughs> <laughs> so trust between the players and the GM. Yep. And then uh, w- w- with a rules light game from the judge's side, there there's the good. There is more responsibility put on the judge to make these rulings. There's not necessarily a you know a set rule in the book that you can go look up on page 272 on how to handle this particular circumstance it may be a case where as the judge you know you need to make a subjective ruling so i think first just the judge has to get used to making subjective rulings sometimes i think for some of us it, it comes naturally uh we actually can feel like the constraints let go but i think other people get intimidated or feel like they're flying without a net if they have to make these subjective rulings as opposed to it says right here in the rule book this is how it is even if they're making a great decision i think sometimes they still feel uncomfortable with that but so i think that's one thing a judge in a rules like game needs to do is be be ready to take on that you know the subjective ruling aspect of a rules like game there's just so much astute so many astute decisions joseph goodman made when he did this game and Going back to calling the referee a judge is one of them. I mean, on the surface, that just sounds like, well, in the old days, that's what they called them before they called them Dungeon Masters. I don't think Joseph was thinking that at all. They called them that in the old days because it was from an impartial referee educating a board game with two opposing players. That's where the term came from, and then it and then it seeped into D&D. And that word is so much more correct for what your the responsibility is when you're GMing one of these style games. Think of yourself as a judge sitting up on a bench, fair and impartial, not the dungeon master lording over your players, you know, manipulating them like the Godfather with little strings. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great point. And I think with that, you know, comes the consistency aspect of uh, you, you're going to make rulings that, and hopefully you're the judge and, you know, it's, you know, fair and balanced for that. But try to be consistent with your rulings as well. That sort of falls on to. So, you know, over the course of time, people can have, at least have a ballpark idea of how you're going to rule something. Because if you go polar opposites from session to session, you start to break that trust that we've we've talked about several times already. Yeah, the consistency is super important. Yes. So if you always make your children cry at the game table, Joe, then maybe it's not so bad. Yeah. I I don't always make them cry. They they're they're tougher now. They don't cry as much. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and uh I guess we talked about this or touched on it at least re- rewarding players who do respond to the system and come at you with really wacky insane ideas. Yeah, I think you've got to reward them uh, for the thing. I mean, some things are just not going to get rewarded, but you have to do it often enough they don't feel like everything they're going to ask to do is a no or oh, I can't do that. Something not necessarily flashy, but in last in my game earlier this week, we've got a, a thief. He likes to get the backstab. He wanted to go for the the enemy that was going to be causing the most damage to one of his allies, and he wanted to get in behind him. And like the positioning just didn't work. And I was like, hey, you can't really get in there. But I said, this other guy over here, his back's to you. He's wide open. So it wasn't necessarily the exact guy he wanted to go for. But I, So I sort of was like, no, you can't get to that guy. It's just positioning's odd. But here's this guy over here. So I made sure to point that out. And boom, you know, he totally happy with that. He gets his backstab in. Wasn't exactly the guy he wants, but he still got to do something cool. So it's things like that. Just keep an eye out for those. So maybe you might have to say no one where, but because you've probably got a mind of how the battlefield's laid out, you might be able to present a, but if you wanted to do this, that might be possible. Uh, you know, ally with your players a little bit. It, uh, on that same point, too, is um, as a judge, you try, you could try to set your players up to be able to do cool stuff. That's lost on top some some judges sometimes, I think, is um, you, you can set up the situation so that the players can knock it out of the park. You, you might have been, you know, subtly nudging them to, you know, I don't know, just just create the opportunities for the players to do cool things. I guess this was my, my point. Yeah, I mean, uh, for example, even and that can be done all kinds of ways, uh, even though, say, uh, Will was uh, upset enough with my version of how his character died that he wrote an email in. He's still talking about that. And he still come, and he lost another one after that. But that third guy he's got, that guy is a survivor, and he's talking about the two that are dead. So something good happened there in that interaction. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Because I, I think that's the ultimate coin. Since you don't, I mean, it's not like Monopoly in role playing games. You don't win. So what? What? What do you get out of it? I think it's all about the bragging rights after the game, which is kind of what you're talking about, Joe putting your players in a situation where they've got a story to tell their friends. Yeah. I mean, uh, what I'm saying is, you know, in the middle of the fight, you can say, you know, Oh, some, some wax from a candle and that chandelier, like hanging above, just like, you know, dripped on your head or something. Just little kind of hints like, Hey, I, I can do other stuff here. And, you know, maybe, you know, do a called shot and shoot and shoot the rope holding the chandelier up or something like that. You know, it's almost a topic for a whole other show, the whole art of how to uh, both, as a judge, present this level of creativity and spontaneity, because it's very theatrical, involves acting as well as role-playing, and how to encourage it from the players. Because I, that's one of my whole goals in the game is when I see a player light up and start really thinking and really doing creative stuff. That's what I want to reward like crazy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we had a case of that. In this week sessions earlier this week was uh, was a pretty good one, but they were fighting some flying creatures, and one of the fighters had no way to fly, nothing to do, but he'd been enlarged, so he was pretty big. And he's like, you know, they're in this city alley, and he's like, is there like a cart or something I could jump on, try to reach up? And I was like, yeah, there's carts, and then there's these tent market stalls. And he's like, can I try to jump up on those and go there? Yeah, you roll the deed die. If you hit your deed die well enough, you know, you can pull that off. So it's sort of a almost a collaborative effort in a lot of my games where. I didn't necessarily, you know, they knew they were in a market, but I didn't say there's carts on the street and these marketed tents. But they ask, and it's like you just roll right with it. And sure, there is. That's, you know, they're there. And, you know, there's carts over here and there's tents. And, you know, the collaborative effort gets you that creativity to, you know, really let the players stretch their stretch their wings. That's brilliant. 
Yeah, that's what I. That's the kind of games I like to play at, where you're not stuck being the only one that's coming up with things over and over. It's like let's all sit around and like come up with cool ideas and throw them out there. And if you go too far, you know, or try to stack stuff in your favor too much, you know, then I'll have to put on my my judge combat boots. But but that's that's my whole point. Those are the things that are sticky. That, that stick around after the game's over. Uh, we'll eventually, hopefully, get Scott Mathis on the program, who's written Transylvania Adventures. I've, I bought his, his game, skimmed through it. I've never played it. You know what I know about Transylvania Adventures? There's something in that game that let you swim across a lake and punch the crap out of a shark over and over again, because that's the story you told me. <laughs> yeah, I played that at Gen Con. That was a great game. So, so, th- so here, I hear that story and I go, "Well, I haven't read it yet, but it's got to be cool because you can punch sharks." <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a fun time. I, that was just I, that was just me with rolling nineteen and twenty over and over all night for some reason. I don't know. So I was able to just do whatever the hell I wanted to. <laughs> Well, it's, uh, that thing that you're talking about, uh, Jeffrey, happening in your game is brilliant, but there's another little trick that I, I am not as good at as I want to be, but I try to be. They, I, when I was a kid, I worked in uh, uh, restaurants, and they were always training us, if, if you only have Coke and somebody comes up and asks you for Pepsi, you never say, no, we don't have Pepsi. You say, we have Coke. Would you like that instead? And that sometimes you have to tell a player no, and you have to, but, you, but doing it that way, you don't shut them down. You go... Well, that won't work, but you could try, here's this canopy, here are these carts right here, if the player hadn't thought of it. Yes, and that's excellent. And especially in a game like this where, you know, there's not necessarily, I mean, we play gridless for the most part. Uh, the combat we're running where the person wanted to jump, we didn't have any maps drawn or anything. And sometimes, you know, to help paint that picture for them, like you said, it's not, you don't shut them down. You say, well, that's not there, but what about this? And it's like, oh, yeah, I could use that. So yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, that's a good way to really get that creativity and uh, and again that creativity I think feeds to the trust issue. If the if the players trust you that you're going to work with them on stuff, they'll not take it as hard when things don't go well for them because it's not you out to get them. It's just well that must not have been here this time or something. So that's that you didn't put something in the show notes that I I just thought of as we're talking about this. I don't know. Ten years ago, when I was out of gaming and was an AD&D baby, I mean, we had hex maps, we had graph paper, we had painted miniatures, we did all that stuff, and we're playing AD&D, which is pretty crunchy. If you'd have told me ten years from now, I'd be running a game where there was no map and no miniatures. I'd have said, you're insane. And we don't, uh, in my game, we don't even, I mean, the map, I give them a little map so they can orient themselves where they are, but it's a piece of notebook paper I'm just drawing stick figure version of where they're at on. Yeah, and I don't know if it's come up before, but we don't use tokens. I mean, we use Roll20, and I'll throw a map down, and I'll use a little bit of Fog of War, but we don't put tokens down for it or anything like that. It's more like you said, just sort of base orientation than it is tactical movement or anything like that. Sometimes, if there's a more confusing situation, I'll sketch something out real quick and just put little dots and real rough, but nothing matches five feet squares or anything. It's just real rough. But yeah, we're, we're very theater of the mind. And it's not, yeah, I love that. I mean, it's not that there's anything wrong with it the other way, because obviously I once enjoyed it, you know, measuring out the distance for a fireball. But that theater of the mind thing is awesome. Yeah, I enjoy that as well. I do like the other style of play, but, you know, it's, to me, just, uh, I don't ha- have that kind of time anymore to, to spend on it. It seems like it, for me, um, running and playing it, it just seems like it takes a lot longer than, than doing the mapless, gridless, theater of the mind style. Shoot, it's usually a prep thing for me. It's like I could spend time prepping exact perfect maps and tokens for everybody, or I could work on my notes so that I can, you know, flow with multiple outlines and offer you guys more choices, <laughs> you know, because I can run with any direction or I've got a couple note cards with a couple highlights on them. And, you know, so it's just a matter of where do I put my prep time and the theater mind fits well and you can just sort of pick up and go, you know, anywhere. I feel like we've just scratched the surface of this and could talk about it for another hour, but we probably better move on, especially since we're going to be announcing a winner in a contest. So has anybody else got anything on this? I've got plenty of things, but we, yeah, we should definitely move on. We could we could make three more shows out of it. So All right. Well, we'll do two more after this then. <laughs> Let's go do some Dungeon Denizens. Go on, boys. Chop his head off. Right. Silly little beater. 
Magic Morphing segment that started out with us doing all the hard work, and then we opened it up to our listeners and turned it into a prize-winning competition. Yeah, we got some really amazing entries. Yeah, I, I really liked what we saw. I, I, how do you feel about it, Jeffrey? Yeah, I thought we got a lot of uh, great entries for this. It was certainly difficult sort of narrowing it down to uh, you know, a particular one to select this episode. But yeah, it was great seeing stuff come in. I like seeing people get out there and you know, start coming up with their own things, and I because I think it lets them know, hey, it's not that hard, not that difficult to do. And they came up with some cool stuff, stuff that I wouldn't normally have thought of. So, yeah, I think it's awesome. Well, we're going to do this every episode, which is great because every submission we've gotten so far, I think, is airworthy. So all we had to do tonight was like pick the favorite, favorite, favorite one just to lead off with. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and, and it's this is probably the best time for me to mention it too. Is um, I'm uh, I'm judging the Monarch of Monsters contest for Kobold Press. So that's open till the end of the month. Um, unfortunately, the only stat block formats they're taking are um, Pathfinder and uh, 13th Age. But the 13th Age stats are really simple. You, you can you could figure those out pretty easily. So, um, you know, all the listeners out there, if you guys are, you know, real monster fanatics and, and want to um, redesign your, your monster with 13th Age stats, go on over to uh, koboldpress.com. And uh, and enter the contest, and that's open through the end of the month of November. Sweet Wolfgang Bauer is a hell of a guy. Oh yeah, yeah, he's a great guy. Okay, which one of us wants to read the mutually uh, decided upon first Dungeon Denizen listener submission? Did we decide on one? Oh yeah, Jeffrey. I'm sorry, Jeffrey and I decided before you got on the call. <laughs> oh okay. <laughs> and, then, and then I think we completely failed to get your vote later. <laughs> That's okay. I'll go with what you guys think. I have one in my head. Well, now uh, I'm curious what yours is. I, 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 I know you, Job, and I know which one you picked, and we didn't pick that one. Oh. How do okay. you like that? <laughs> I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. I don't know how to feel about that. Did he you really, faced him. Did, did, he, did he really read my mind? Ooh, that's spooky. Sorry. We'll Let's find out how, much you, how well you know me, Jim. It is so very – well, I can't tell you which one I think you picked. You can just say if this was it or not. Because we want right. to we we'll want to save the other ones for next episode. Okay, that's what we'll do, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> it is so very late in the evening, Mister West Coast. Oh, did you just ah? Uh, see, you know which one. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe you liked the same one Jeffrey and I did. Well, let's find out. Come on, I, I'm on the edge of my seat here. Who's who's our uh, first Dungeon Denizen winning submission? I'll read the creature, and then we'll say who's, who submitted it. How's that sound? That sounds great. Okay. Now, I'm probably going to sort of gloss over the stat block here. But uh, the winning creature is the Nabtimbo J. Woo! Oh, you, <laughs> we, did, we did agree. Yeah. I, yeah. I just uh, want to draw this thing. Yeah, it sounded pretty awesome. Let me read through the description here so people can understand the awesomeness instead of just listening to us glow on it. Let's see, stat blocks are written out. It's a size large, 8 foot, 9 foot. It gets multiple attacks. Reasonably high AC, sitting around at an 18. Five hit dice creature. A claw, movement claw, bite. Of 40. The, What's that? Claw, claw, bite. The, yep, claw, claw, bite. The uh, So we've got that in there. And, uh, you know, we get a little sneak peek at the ray from the third eye. See below. So you can't go wrong with a ray. So the description of this creature, the Nab Timbo J, which comes complete with a pronunciation guide. He knows Jim, all right. He knows Elite Me oh, Too. Oh, we were before, <laughs> off air, I'm like, I'm not calling it that. I'm calling it the Triclops. That's what it is. <laughs> so this creature is a large, seven to eight foot tall humanoid Triclops-like creatures. They're covered in blue hair, have squatted muscular torso, powerful arms, black talon-like claws and feet. They have two yellow eyes. However, their third eye in the center of their forehead is bright glowing red. This third eye is actually the lens for their beam range attack. Below their eyes is a vicious shark-like mouth with rows of razor-sharp teeth. You treat the beam attack as a ray of enfeeblement attack with a spell check of a plus 8. See page 190 of the DCC core rulebook with the following additions. 
Manifestation will be a bright red beam two feet in diameter. The beam will also blind the target for 1d3 combat rounds. The beam must recharge and will be available in 1d6 rounds. On a natural one, the beam will be lost for the day and fumble must be rolled. Also roll a D percent on a one. The lens will shatter and the head will explode, causing the creature to collapse and die in 1d4 rounds. And you're, and you're seeing one to four of these things at a time. You are. And this was sent in from Stinky One-Eyed Ogre. So congratulations. Uh, I think we all thought this creature was pretty awesome. Awesome. Right? Right? Yeah, I thought it was. out of the park, Stinky. Stinky One-Eyed Ogre, here's what you win. This creature, along with uh, an illustration done by one of us, will appear in the Dungeon Denizens of our website. And you can you get all the bragging rights therein. Yes, you do. That's awesome. So yeah, it was a it was a sweet creature. I may have to borrow this one for one of my games. <laughs> yeah, they'll fit in with the laser massacre. That's right. I just I I don't know. I I have I'm an old Jack Kirby comics guy, and I just read his description and I saw it in my head. So this should be a good illustration. Awesome. Did you did you start already? No, no. But I will. By the time we get this episode up, I'll have it done. I'm looking forward to seeing this one. Okay, well, thanks, Stinky One-Eyed Ogre, and thank you our other listeners who have also submitted. Uh, we're going to do one of these a week, so I think the uh, other submissions we have right now are all in the running for next week, and it's an open contest, so just keep sending them in. Yep, yeah, definitely keep, keep them coming. And let's move it to Patron Bond. Who are you? Your new lord and master. What orders from Mordor, my lord? Oh, don't grovel. One thing I can't stand, it's people groveling. Patron Bond. So, rules light approach. Critical hit, hit, miss, or fumble, you guys. I have to call it a critical hit. I like the rules light stuff. It's very freeing. It sort of re-energizes me as a, as a DM. So, yeah, I have to give it a critical hit. It just it works well for me breath of fresh air so i think it works really well and i'm glad sort of the dcc went this direction with it yeah i've got to agree with you 100 percent uh jeffrey is a critical hit for rules light rules light is to me you know how, how i played the game as as a kid with you know like the the uh, mold they cook m- yeah the mold they basic box and uh, i don't recall any of the rules so i think i was pretty much making them up and rolling the die (laughs) and you know i had a blast and you know i kind of got back into gaming and played you know fourth edition pathfinder a bit as as soon as i i moved back and and started playing some of the osr games and and, you know and now specifically dungeon crawl classics rpg this is the the kind of game that i remember having fun with yeah i'm ashamed to admit that in part it was old age that drove me to rules light systems just because I got less found I had less and less patience for crunchy systems. I've never was big on them, but as I got older, I got less uh, patient with the crunchy systems because I played fourth edition and um, just not my cup of tea. So uh, I, I was I was you know it led to this uh, kind of kicking and screaming, then to discover the joys of it and go, oh hey wait a minute, I, I had to I had to be taught i didn't know that what we did in the beginning when we were young was a great way to play still the rulings not rules because when you don't understand the rules you start just making it up like you said so critical hit for me too here we are all in agreement back to one happy party there we are okay well i think that'll wrap it up for this episode we're getting back in the groove now where we're chunking out one of these a week yeah feels good it does yeah definitely well, if we can keep it up. <laughs> we got the holidays coming up here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you never know. The Dark Master might assign somebody else another big media assignment. That sounds ominous, uh, Jim. Do you have some special secret news that you can't tell us? Oh, I, I, no, no. Did I sound like it? I'm just practicing my judging skills. I'm trying to sound like I have a, a, a adventure prepared. When I go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for listening, and remember, never split the party unless the party's already split. Thanks, everyone. See ya!
production of Wild Games Productions in association with D20Radio.com. The Spellburn theme music is provided by the band Glitter Wizard. You can find them at glitterwizard.bandcamp.com. Mikey Mason's song, Summer of 83, used with his kind permission because he's one hell of a guy. Seriously, the dude played a gig at our game store. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Spellburn. Spellburn.